some people are uh, having colds and difficulties, so I know um, we're small in number. I hope not in spirit this morning. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again, Lord, for um, our life, the gift of it from you, the gift of yourself to us, for all the ways you, in which you offer yourself, particularly for the gift of yourself in Mass this morning, for your living presence that we carry within us, for all that it does to help us become better. Um, I ask um, for a blessing on Walter, um, Becky's husband. Um, if he's um, in purgatory, let our prayers speed him. Um, but in any case, let him come into the presence of your into the joy of your presence. Father used the phrase this morning that Christ opened heaven to us. Um, let Walter pass there into your presence, come into your presence and know a joy in being with you and a joy in being with others. Um, help us not just to be consoled um, with the, in our faith in these things, but to take a joy believing, knowing that there is a great joy, um, greater, all the greater for all the people um, that those in heaven will encounter to be with. Uh, um, how can we get close to explaining the communion um, that takes place there? The great, it's like the multiplication of the fishes constantly expanding. Let it be so for him. We ask a blessing on Iris. Um, um, stop the spread of this cancer, please. Um, help the doctors discover a help. Whatever happens, um, let this difficulty um, be an occasion for her growing closer to you. Loving life more dearly if she's to pass, to leave it, um, to be glad for the time here, and let everybody close to her who loves her be consoled and take hope, be glad, um, for her going. Let it be so for all of us. Um, I ask a special blessing on Amy. Let her heart quiet. Um, help her to learn about herself. Um, things that will be important for her to grow in her love. Um, hopefully that she will um, give it one day. Um, I ask for a blessing on all of us. Um, this is a period um, for repenting, for our taking on our sins. Let it be so for all of us. Help us to put away the fussing in our lives, um, being too preoccupied with this world, um, and strengthen in us a spirit of contemplative prayer, to be more contemplative, to let this world pass, so that in everything that we do, in everything that we do, um, we bring a more contemplative spirit, quiet, not thrown off by the things around us. Let it be so for all of us. And help us um, to learn more about ourselves from the works that we're reading and more about you. And bring what we learn into our lives and make it active. <coughs> so we live these things, not just keep them in our heads. I ask this prayer in your name, Lord. Amen.
Okay, let's start. Um, I've got some new thoughts on Hamlet, so I'm actually glad for this time. Um, see what you guys think. Just a quick, what I'd like to do is just quickly review what we've done the last couple of weeks. Um, the, this, the importance that I'm giving genre may seem tangential, you know, as if it doesn't bear to the work that we do because for our purposes it seems to me everything that I'm doing is oriented <coughs> in a catechetical direction that it's not drawing us more deeply into the church and closer to Christ I shouldn't be doing it so what in the world does genre have to do with Christ but I, I, I hope it's been clear and if it isn't it will become finally clear today we won't there's only one more thing I'll have to say on genre, and, it's, and it has to wait until we do Winter's Tale. <clears throat> because in Winter's Tale, Shakespeare does something with genres that nobody else has ever done. When, if, if you look at Winter's Tale, the first half of it's the Othello story. It really is the Othello story. Leontes does things with his wife, puts her in a prison, the tower. He's doing what the kings did during Shakespeare's time, or the queens, Elizabeth. Puts his wife in the tower, accuses her of adultery. They will lose um, their child, Mamilius, the, the prince heir, and the kingdom will be without an heir. So it's a pretty serious first half. It ends with the news that um, Hermione's is dead. They've lost their son. It's a devastating moment. And having said that, I was going to go on to tell you what happened in the second half, but I'm not going to tell you. You have to read. <laughs> anyway, what he does is extraordinary, but it, it blows genres out of the water. And I'm going to wait till we get there to tell you what I think he's doing, because it's going to transform the whole pagan understanding of tragedy, radically change it. So it, it may seem academic. I don't believe it is. This whole notion of genre. So I want to. I want to come back. Another word for genre. Genre just means a type, a kind. Okay. Um, genre class. Classification. Oh, class. That's all it means. You know. So um, we use it in literature, but I mean, you could use it in zoology. You know, it just means a type, a class, um, classic form of classification. I think it's used in literature because it, it clearly distinguishes itself from the words that you'd find in the sciences. But it's, it basically means a class. There, there are three kinds of literature, lyric, drama, narrative. And it's, it's certainly important for me, it's the basis of this book I'm writing because the claim I'm making is that the ultimate ground of those three voices, those three kinds, are the persons of the Trinity. I don't want to go there, but but it's important. It's important. Um, and since you asked the question, let me when I do this, Tom, let me see if I can't throw a little bit more light on it. I'm just going to briefly go over it this morning. But let me just quick do a quick review because I want to get to Hamlet. We've been talking about poetry, and I added one more quality to it in the last couple of weeks, and that because we've been reading drama in the storyteller in the not in the narratives. Remember. Um, we're dealing with stories that are told by a storyteller. Homer tells the story of Achilles and of Odysseus. Virgil tells the story of Aeneas. Dante tells the story of his journey with Virgil and Beatrice. 
So we always get a story through a person, yeah? So the, the centeredness of a, of a consciousness is present implicitly in these stories, right? Everything, nobody can tell the story unless it's in their consciousness. Homer could not have told his story if it wasn't in him to tell. Same way when we gather at weddings and we tell stories, right? They're a part of us, they're in us, or they couldn't be told. We know from Homer and, and Virgil that they cannot tell the stories without the help of the gods because those stories begin with invocations. Help me, muse. But they're in themselves. A whole, a whole cosmological view is contained in their consciousness, or they couldn't tell the story. Yeah? So implicitly in narrative, there's a, there's a self at the center telling a story. Right? You all look so... In drama, that's not so. Because in drama, a story isn't being narrated, it's being presented with no narrator. So in drama, we're encouraged to step outside of our self-centeredness and begin to see the way God does. So in this story, we, we watch all this stuff going on, but it's not focused through a storyteller. We're standing outside of it, aware that all of this is happening. So in drama, we, and the reason I'm saying this is I think most of us are fairly self-centered in our lives. I mean, maybe I'm claiming too much there, but I don't think. And I know that's true for myself in lots of ways. And I mean, I try to step outside and look at things, but, you know. The danger for us is that we can become so self-centered that the world doesn't have the reality that should for us. We all know that. We can become so preoccupied in ourselves that we lose touch with what's going on. Um, we can't extinguish ourselves completely um, because we have a self. Each one of us is different. In drama, <clears throat> we've got an unusual situation where a story is laid out before us and we're, we stand in a position to see everything that's going on around, how the people relate, even if they don't see how they relate to each other, we do, right? We watch Polonius do something even if Hamlet's not completely aware of it or Claudius do something when Ophelia, or Gertrude isn't aware of it. In, in, in Othello, we watched all this happening with Iago without Amelia having a clue, right? So it should be clear, this is sort of amazing because it, it, it makes us aware that there's that there's a potential blindness to us, that there's a lot we don't see, but there, all, there, there also is this capacity for us to see more than we would if we would step outside of ourselves. And in all, in all of these plays, we've been seeing from, from the perspective of the drama that's unfolding, we don't get it through a narrator, we just see all these relationships, and it, we not only see these external things involving all these people, we, we are privileged to go inside of characters' minds. We're given the thoughts of Iago, we're given the thoughts of Othello, and you can't read Hamlet without going into his thoughts all the time. And a couple of times we actually get into Claudius's interior. Now think about that. I mean, I'm asking you to take this really seriously. Think, as th I'm talking about, a, about an artist and the way he works. Think seriously about this. How many of us make that effort to go inside of the soul of another person? We, sometimes we can be so self-centered that, it, and I'm taking this, I'm, the, 
you know, and trust that everybody knows this, the effects of that and what we do with our lives on other people. If we ever made that step to, to see that there's a greater whole, what it would do for the way we live our lives. So what poetry is giving us here, I'm claiming, is the kind of knowledge that God has. And repeatedly in our readings, we're told to make judgments from the perspective of eternity, eternal things, to, to get free of the world so that it doesn't have the attachment that it does too often on us, and to see things the way God does in a larger way. It means entering into the lives of other people. So once again, I'm saying that poetry is giving us a way of seeing and feeling we don't get anywhere else. Okay? So I'm just continuing to add to... So we've talked about poetry and its prophetic powers it's for making us aware, for helping us to see and feel things that we don't. We've talked about the city. In Merchant of Venice we, and Othello, we looked at Venice and we, and we saw that it, it's the um, usurious city. It's the city whose end is security and money. To have a secure, sufficient, remember from, who's the guy who founded the first city? I can't even remember his name right now. Cain's son, Enoch. Enoch, remember, founded the first city and we saw that the city comes into existence. Man attempts to create a world in which he's self-sufficient and no longer dependent on God. So the city has this dual character. It's it's um, really is a cutting-edge sword that, that man does great things in the city because he's there's this greatness to his nature. But there's also something innately, inherently bad about it. Everything that goes on goes on in, in an effort to be independent of God. So the city was a usurious city. It, its end was to make people wealthy, secure, but in the, in, the, um, in the effort to do that, people become inhuman. We saw the two different laws, the Christian law, the Jewish law, and, and the danger of the Judaic law is that it, it finally leads to death. The, the self-protection, the self-righteousness that, that, that has that effect. Nobody, nobody within the city can answer that problem because they're all raised by it. To, to answer it, somebody from outside the city has to come. And it's clear from what Portia does that, that for the problems of Venice to be resolved, somebody has to come from outside, and somebody has to underst who, who understands the ends of the law, the justice that the law is intended to meet. Because we see that Portia defeats Shylock in that courtroom scene only by outdoing him in her legalistic, you know, she goes farther than he does, then this is what, if this is what you're going to do, then you have to do this. You can have, you can have a pound of flesh, but not a, not a jot of blood. So, because she's trying to, she's trying to realize the ends of the law, not those ends that would be self-serving to shine light. Don? What about the positive aspects of the city? What about them? You haven't mentioned them. I haven't seen them. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, it's hard for me, I mean, I haven't... Aristotle said man is a social animal, so they gather together in a society or in a city, <clears throat> as you said, for protection, for commerce, trade. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you have libraries, you have... Uh, stay, uh, stay inside the play. I mean, my, my, I mean, my immediate answer off the top of my head is um, I tried to put the city in the most positive aspect when we did Divine Comedy 
Remember the, the city, according to Plato's view, is punitive, that the laws are punitive. That what produced, here's the positive side. What, and I, it's going to be, I mean, that, you raise a really good question. The positive side of the city that produced um, Florence and Venice, so that they were new entities, we, we saw nothing like that in the ancient world or in the Middle Ages because the Middle Ages were feudal, you know? That, uh, that uh, with the rediscovery of Aristotle, people saw that there was this inherent good to the city. Um, the development of universities? No, stay in the, stay in the play. I don't have any question about that myself. Theoretically, but if I look at the play, let me let me put it this way, if I can put it, because I, I I want to protect the good that you're trying to protect right now. Venice and Florence are new forms of communal life, and and they come into existence because of Aristotle, and the argument that he made. The popes support it, and it raises the problem that we saw in the Divine Comedy, which is um, it produced these world these communities that were independent of the church and of the emperor, the state. So that the driving forces of the, of the city wasn't the papacy or the emperor, it was the man's good, the good he could achieve on his own efforts. So, because remember, the, even Christ says, given the Caesars, that the, the, there were, the, the great achievement of the medieval church was for the church to disentangle itself, disengage itself from the city. Because the church should not be directing city life. It's not its end. The end of the church is the salvation of souls. The end of Caesar is the good of man on earth. So with Aristotle, with the Renaissance, these new kinds of cities were, were created. So the, the only good that I can, I mean, <laughs> that's a really good question. The only good that I can see is that implicit in that city is what you're talking about. That the 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 city and its independence, this new kind of independence where it gets free of the church and the state at the same time, so that man is free to pursue his own good, leaves him free to choose for the church, to choose you know, whatever he's going to do. But it, it implies an inherent, intrinsic good, learning, security, comfort, I mean, whatever. But what the point that I'm making is in, in what Shakespeare shows us, his treatment of the city, not theoretically, not in the play itself, um, most of what we see is negative. People don't have time for friends. I mean, you saw, we went through this, the opening lines, um, we don't see you anymore, and they run off for business because everybody's so preoccupied with business. There is no friendship. There's, there, to put it this way, this is Shakespeare's critique of it. There's no time for friendship. More importantly, there's no time for art or philosophy. For that, you go to Venice. How many people in our world take time to read philosophy? Who would read, who would read Aristotle today? <laughs> Not, Don, go away. <laughs> I know that, I, but I'm, I'm talking about generally. You and I, I mean, we should, it's my life. Um, but how many people today? The, the numbers are rare. Who loves, who loves wisdom in our world? What people love is money, success, comfort, prestige, image. 
those are all the things that Shakespeare's critiquing. So how big your house is and how much land you have around it, that's what my family is into. Yeah. Anyway, let me yeah, let me stop there. Just that was Venice. Remember, it was also the sterile city. It breeds money. That's Shakespeare's critique of the modern. Denmark is a critique of the modern city in another way because what we see in Denmark is a totalitarian condition, and it seems to me that's very modern for this reason. And this is really crucial. The there were no totalitarian regimes in the ancient world of this kind. The, the totalitarian nature of the modern regime rests on the intellect. The, do you want to? Do you have a Don? You want to bring this into the? You want to bring this in here? Do you have a question or something? No. Um, the nature of the modern totalitarian regime is intellectual. It's based on cunning. This is this is one of the fruits of Machiavelli. Shakespeare knew Machiavelli. There were manuscripts being you know, handed, handed around. So what we see in this play is a new kind of despotic power. It's not that the ancient world didn't know despotism, it did. Um, but not of this kind. What Shakespeare's showing us is a peculiar modern thing. That people, this is one of the principles of the modern world. The more knowledge you have, the more power over things you have. Shakespeare's critiquing that. Right? I mean, what he's showing here, Polonius says, I can get to the heart of Hamlet, I can get to his secret. I think I read that line. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern had that scene. I'm going to read it again here. But to me, it's one of the most scathing passages in all of Shakespeare that I know of. These men, Claudius has set all these people on Hamlet. They want to find out what's going on to him. There's this presumption that you can know the soul of another human being. What's the opening line? Who's there? The whole poem is a critique of the modern assumption that we can use our intellects to control things. And Hamlet's the answer to that. What is he doing? He's in his intellect everywhere. He's got to answer it. I mean, think how distraught he's got to be to constantly have to answer people who are over-controlling. Puts him at odds with everybody. And, and Ophelia, the woman he loves, she's being used and, and allowing it to happen. So he's looking at another aspect of the modern city. And, and the other thing to add to this is, is that Denmark, I've talked about this, also reveals to us something introduced into the world through the Protestant Reformation. Hamlet has this private revelation. It isolates him from the world. There's nothing that goes on in this play that doesn't show the effects of that. Who can he turn to? He can't kill him, his uncle. If he kills him and said, the ghost of my father told him, he who would believe him? When a, when, a, when a revelation becomes utterly private, how does it relate to the norms of political life? Because the norms of political life generally depend on consensus or deliberation or things that can be known, that people can talk about. The very fact that it's private and it's supernatural in nature absolutely removes him from the world. He can't, who can he talk with? So in Hamlet, Shakespeare's showing us a very modern person. And I'm, I'm assuming that e even if everybody's Catholic or almost, that there's something Protestant to us because we live in a Protestant world. You know my claim. I think we've, the, the American Catholic Church has become partly Protestantized. Um, Shakespeare's critiquing that. So 
we've talked about all of these things. I talked briefly about the technique. Um, Hamlet constantly uses allusions from the ancient world. He refers to Jephthah when Polonius comes in. And remember, Jephthah was the judge who sacrificed his daughter. That's not an accident. It shows how bright this young kid is. He sees that um, Polonius is a Jephthah figure. Um, there's one scene where he and Polonius are talking and when the actors are around, and Polonius said that he acted um, Caesar, played Caesar, and he was killed by Brutus. Who does that make Hamlet? Brutus, because he's going to kill him. We know that when he sticks the sword in the heiress. And there's that other one, I'm forgetting it. Um, oh, he says he doesn't want to be, Hamlet says he doesn't want to be a Nero figure with his mom, because Nero killed his mother. Why does Shakespeare put those words in Hamlet's mouth? Because he's literary? Yes. But also to show us that what's happening with Hamlet is simultaneous with what happened in the ancient world again and again. So that even with all of our claims to be modern, to have produced this better city, that spiritually we are no different than the people who lived then. We are still doing, spiritually, morally, we are still doing the same. We can have all the comfort in the world, better houses, better wealth. We think we've got better security. I think, I personally think that's an illusion. Um, but what, we're, what Shakespeare's showing us is what's going on here has happened again and again and again and again. That morally and spiritually, the real problems in our lives, how do we relate to God, to religious matters, and how do we bring that to our relationships? And what we see here is tragic. That's one of the techniques. The other is remember that um, I asked you that, I think I asked you that question, when, when do we learn that Claudius killed his brother? Was it before or after the Claudius's State of the Union address, do you remember? It is after. And when do we learn that Polonius sends Ronaldo to spy on his son? Is it before he sends his son off or after? It's after. Why does Shakespeare do that? Now just think about this. We're presented the, the opening. We, we're told that there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. Something's wrong. Hamlet has these misgivings. Spiritually, people are uneasy. They're unsettled. Preparations for war are going on. But a ghost has been appearing, and the guards know that. And then we get the state of the address. And in, I, I read it, I think, through some of it with you guys. In that state of address, we're watching a guy do something masterful. He's pulling all these contradictions together, and then he has that line, thanks you know, for all of this. And So we're, wait one second. We're, we're watching him do an amazing thing verbally. He seems like a competent statesman. And then two scenes later, we learn he killed his brother. We watch Polonius send his son off. Two scenes later, we see him talking with Ronaldo and tell him to go spy on his son. Why does Shakespeare do that? Like Homer and other poets, he's putting us in a world of appearances to see if we're on guard, to learn that very often the way things seem to be are not the way they are. So he's, he's trying. <laughs> trying to help us out of the cave. I mean, I, I don't think there's any other way to say it. So there are little things like this that he does as a poet that are, you know, you could pass over them. Not if you're paying attention to sequence or appearances. If we're paying attention to appearances, we've got to say something's wrong. Are we on guard? 
Remember Plato's, Plato's in, um, injunctive, is that the word for us? Was, mind your own business. We have to take care of who we are and what we're doing. And after Christ and Paul, that means changing who we are inside. Because otherwise, we're, the world's got us. That's what's going on here. So we're watching Hamlet struggle with all of this. You can call it the cave. I mean, if the cave gets, that, that's too mild a term given the tragedies he's got. But Don, you had a question. Yeah, in the statement, something about the state of Denmark. When I was thinking about that, I think that Hamlet said, but it wasn't Hamlet, it was Marcellus or Bernardo, one of those. Uh, Something's right in the state of Denmark? Yeah. Yeah. They were the ones that said that. Yeah, I can't That's remember. The ghost scene. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, I've got it here. Um, Marcellus. Mm-hmm. It's Act 1, it's 1488. It's Marcellus who said that. Hamlet says Denmark's a prison house, and he also, this is Act 1, Scene 2. Line 130, he calls it a prison house, and he also says, Denmark is an unweeded garden. We've lost the garden. We've moved out of a lyric world into tragedy. So. Why can't Hamlet turn to the guards? Say, why can't he what? Why can't he go to the guards? They saw the ghost also. They didn't hear what what the ghost told Hamlet, but they at least saw the ghost. Right. So everyone is saying Hamlet's going crazy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but he's got three people, Horatio, yes. Leonardo, and Francisco, right. <clears throat> yeah. that at, at, a, at least at some level have seen yeah, right. the ghost. Right. So he's got some allies, but he's not, he still feels like he's by himself. Like yeah. he's got to take this right. on. Yeah. Good for you. That's a good question, too. Boy, you, you guys are getting, I'm getting more and more impressed. No, you guys are reading better. I'm really glad. The, the, the off the top of my head answer could, is, that's a really good question. My assumption is that what he learns from the ghost is so unsettling um, that he can't share it. And it's in, he, he will tell. We learn, I think it's in the third act that he does tell Horatio. He makes a point of saying, you remember I told you about it. So in, by the middle of the play that we know, Horatio knows the nature of the revelation. But I think Hamlet can't do anything with it until after the mousetrap because he, don't know, he doesn't know if he's not being tempted, that this isn't an evil ghost. If the ghost is right, then there's a treacherous thing going on, and who could he trust? I mean, how does anybody know that the guards weren't? I mean, you know, if, if, the, if the king snuck in, it, it, because <clears throat> I can't answer this question. We don't have knowledge in the text. When I read that State of the Union address, and he says, thanks for your, you know, your advice. I followed your wisdom all along. It makes me wonder if anybody was also privy to that. I doubt it, but we don't know. But if it's a world in which supernatural things are intervening privately, who can you trust? the guards would have gone to the king if... We don't, but we don't know that, and he doesn't. If you're asking about him, from his perspective, yeah. he doesn't know what's gone on, when, or he doesn't know that they didn't, or... Okay. I mean, we can get in our mind and go over this. I think just, you know, the simple answer is that the nature of that revelation is so... is so threatening, and it suggests 
powers at work that are so dangerous. I mean, remember, this is a supernatural thing. It's either demonic and it could be tricking him, or it's real. That who do you who do you, I mean? I think what she, all I'm doing is repeating myself. That what he's showing is that the nature of this, because it's private, raises all sorts of questions of trust in the human world that that ordinarily we don't deal with on a natural. Remember that one. Of the, remember one of the things I said. One of the qualities of Venice. And one of the qualities of Denmark is people think reason sufficient. We, I said that in Othello, you know, because I thought, you know, the, the natural thing to do with Othello is to say, why didn't he just go confront her? Why didn't he do this? Why didn't he do this? Why, I mean, we can go on. And I think, remember, my answer to that is, remember that quote that I gave you when Iago said to Brabantio, if the devil asked you to worship God, you wouldn't do it. And then he said all these negative things. What he's saying is, um, you're in a world in which you think reason is sufficient to explain everything. One of the dangers of that world is it doesn't know how to deal with evil. And let me put this as starkly as I can. I think this is Shakespeare's critique of reason, that this is our age. And the point that I'm going to go on to make is reason in our world is deranged. It's diseased. If you grow up thinking reason is sufficient, how on guard are you against evil? And let me put it darkly. Let's put our wits against Satan, that we're intellectually capable. How would we fare in an intellectual match with Satan? He was the greatest of the angels. He's intellectual by nature. What are the things that he could do to fool us? Is reason sufficient to defeat him? Otherwise, why do we need God? Why does Christ have to come into the world? This is the brightest of the angels, the most intellectual. It scares me to think about trying to deal with him, you know, with our own minds. Shakespeare over and over and over again is showing us the limitations to our intellectual powers, the limits to reason, what it can and can't do, and the dangers. So, I mean, I, it, it struck me when we were doing Othello a couple weeks ago, I'm not sure that I saw it quite as clearly, but it, it hit me with such force that so many of the criticisms I had growing up when I started reading Othello and teaching it, why didn't he do this, why didn't he, suddenly realized that's the Venetian world. Of course those are the things you're going to ask. Well then what does Satan do next, or what does somebody like Iago, I mean, when you're, when you're dealing with somebody that evil and you're not on guard? So one of the things he's showing us is this tendency in the Venetian world to look at reason as if it's sufficient, as if it's adequate. And what he's showing us is it's not. And, and it raises the other, how well do we love? If our minds keep guiding us, do we love as we are? Where's Christ? Othello dies at the end. Portion of the group go back to Belmont. They don't stay in Venice. And here at the end, everybody's going to die. So he's showing us that there are, and I think raising this question that I'm raising, where's Christ? Where is love? Are we doing what Christ asked? Are we seeing the way he's asking us? What is Shakespeare teaching us about ourselves? Okay, I, I'm not going to do this because it's, you remember the genre wheel that we started in the garden, we lost the garden and entered into a tragic world. Drama gives us both forms. The drama gives us both forms of our human life. Tragedy moves from good fortune to bad, Comedy moves from bad fortune to good. So the whole of our life is there. Implied in both of them is a new end. 
Tragedy always moves towards a resolution. Comedy always moves towards a joy, very often a happy marriage. The epic is the battle of a, of a whole people with a disorder that takes them to a new founding. So the whole direction of the epic is towards a new founding and points back to the garden. A new order will come into being. And the new order in the garden, the nature of the lyric, what it's, what's behind all lyric is love. The wholeness of love. The, the love that we were meant to have. In the terms in which we're talking about it today, it's the love that gets disturbed, disordered by what the mind does with things. Now quickly, because I've got to could do this quickly. Um, I haven't done this before, but um, one of the ways in which we can look at the plot of tragedy is by looking at its stages. Now remember, according to Aristotle, this is so important, um, the plot is the soul of tragedy. The plot is an imitation of an action. It's an imitation of an action. So all these episodes happen. This happens, this happens, you know. All these incidences take place. That sequence of incidences is an imitation of an action. So by action, he meant something inward, in, interiorly. So if we look at the Iliad, the Iliad, the action, excuse me, the action of the Iliad is a, is, a, is a war that takes place between two peoples. That's the action. But the spiritual action clearly is this movement of spirit that's at work to, to bring these disorders um, to a resolution, to something new. And um, the, the person who carries that burden largely is Achilles. By the time we get to the end of the Iliad, we realize that something new has entered into the spirit of this man. Remember in the ninth book when he said, such honor is a thing I need not, and then at the end he says, I let everybody down. So if we look at the action, we're, we're watching something new entering this war that has the power to transform things. How many people in the epic see it? I don't even think Achilles does. The question that I raise for everybody is, does the poet see it? Do the readers see it? Um, so, um, we've talked about the plot in, in these terms, but now I'd like to look at it as, as in terms of its stages. So, if we look at the plot in terms of its stages, every, every tragedy, every comedy has these stages. It begins with an opening problem, it reaches a complication, comes to a crisis, that crisis is answered, something happens to move it towards its resolution. So there's, there's a completed action, okay? By the way, I wanted to, to this notion of imitation, that it's an action. If you remember, I think, were you, I, I think Becky was here in the evening class and she handed out um, bookmarks for paintings. Did you guys get them? Yeah. It was an evening class, wasn't it? Was it here in the morning? It was here. Boy, am I lost. Um, well, here, let me give an example. If you look at those, were those representational um, images of people? Literal, represent, I mean, photographic, rep representational that? 
Could you see clearly delineated people the way we do when we look at each other? Was it representational in that sense? No. Right? And if, if you had some, if you gave 10 artists a, a consignment and said, I want a picture that you call um, The Unborn, wasn't that the title? Unborn Soul. The Unborn Soul. If you gave a commission to 10 artists and said, paint this, would they all paint it the same way? No. What you see in her, in that, I hope you don't, I'm sorry, if I'm, I hope I'm not. No. Okay, um, should have asked, sorry, sorry, Becky. If you look at that painting, what you see is something of the spirit that she brings to that. So even though literally this is what you have, right, she brought something of her spirit to that, like this. So lots of artists can give us a sequence of events, right, but how many of them will see some in inward change of the kind that Homer showed us or Virgil or Shakespeare? So here's the, the work by stages. What's the opening problem of um, Merchant of Venice? Antonio is depressed. Sand depressed. Say it again, Don. Antonio is sand depressed. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I, our mind goes there. It, certainly, on one level, it's Antonio's sadness that there's something that isolates him from, you know, he has this love of Bassanio. But um, if you look at that opening, it seems to me it's the way in which a character is isolated in a commercial regime because there's no time for friendship. His friends don't understand him. He's sad. So there's this cross-purposes that people, <coughs> that friendships are missing in this world, that people are so busy that they don't have time, they don't have time for friendship, and they don't understand each other. The, the responses they give are more revealing of them than anything true about him. So the opening problem is this lonely condition in this regime, that it, that it creates this situation. Every opening problem followed by a complication. What's the complication? I think it's Bassanio wanting the money because that's going to infinite. I mean, it's going to set the plot in a very definite direction. And Tony's going to have to take out money to support his friend. The crisis is when? What's the crisis of Merchant of Venice? Courtroom scene. Courtroom scene. Yeah, when the ships don't come in and, and, and um, Antonio can't pay off the loan and it forces them into a court battle. The, the denouement is the, is the settling of the courtroom scene, I think, when Portia answers it to the satisfaction of everybody. And the resolution, they come back to Belmont, they leave that world, that usurious world, and, and, and they actually settle some more of the problem. The denouement, the denouement continues because um, the, the wives have got to educate their husbands about some matters at the end before things, before things can be resolved. But, what is the modern world thinks they solved that problem by inventing bankruptcy laws? <laughs> right. That's <laughs> the Venetian world in, in spades. That's the problem, right? Yeah. Um, what is that? Is that a French word? Denouement. 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 I've heard it, but I've never understood it. Though. What's the is denouement it? means? I think it means. I mean, what has it different from the resolution? The denouement is settling things. 
um, the resolution is bringing things to a final <coughs> order because um, the sort difference between them is really subtle, huh? Sort of ends the crisis. Which? The denouement. The yeah. It's, but then afterwards, you've got to get all the pieces together. Yeah, you've got to you've got to bring closure. There has it to be. It is sometimes used as closure, though. What? Denouement. Yeah. Um, in in Hamlet, what's the opening problem? Yeah, something's sorry. Go. Yeah, the preparations for war and the appearances of the ghost. Something's right. Something's not good in Denmark. So, the complication should be pretty clear. Does he believe it or not? The revelation of the ghost, right? Yeah. What Hamlet learns unsettles everything because if if the, what the ghost says is true, then um, his uncle committed regicide. He killed a king, and he's serving as king illicitly, horribly. I mean, in a grave, grave wrong has been done. Does he marry his mother? Yeah. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's part. Yeah. Good. Anyway, I I don't want to go through this, but that's the movement of it. Okay. And the point that I want to make here, remember at the center of it is the turn, the peripatia, the anagnoris, the, the knowing, that the, that the tragic hero undergoes, that he turns, the action turns, he turns. There's this scene, and the catharsis that takes place is the purging of pity and fear, the tragic emotions that are awakened. Pity for the suffering of another, fear because of the dangers that one is facing. And Aristotle would say those, the, that the whole purpose of the, of the movement is to purge those feelings because so long as we're in those emotions, pity and fear, we're in a state of paralysis. Pity can paralyze us. We learn that from Dante. We can feel so sorry for the troubles of people that we don't act. We talked about this on Monday evening. If you're in a family with somebody having drug, one of the dangers is to feel so sorry for that person that you don't do something. Alcohol, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, those are to deal with the dangers that the disorders that we present to each other always puts us at risk. Always. So I'm, I'm trusting that everybody knows the danger of that. Tragedy, the movement of tragedy works to, to, for a purging to occur. Which means, and this is, this is where this is all going, which means that the movement towards every tragedy, no matter how horrible it is, no matter how horrible, is an affirmation of reason. When pity and fear are purged, there's a return, a restoration. Right? The, the evil's been answered, yes? Does Shakespeare ever leave a play with evil not answered? No, never. Whatever injustices are done are met. So every, every, the action of every tragedy moves towards a resolution, the answering of some evil, the restoration of an order. Or, or, the, or, or a cleansing that is the preparation for a new order. Reason can be restored. The wrong has been answered. So every tragedy implies in life a logos, a purposefulness, a reason, an intelligibility that God's working in the universe, that there's a goodness possible, that the evil will destroy itself or be destroyed. So every tragedy, while on the surface, seems to be bad? This is why I want to take some time with tragedy. It's not. 
Our lack of a tragic vision in our age is a sign of something wrong with us. All tragedy, everybody in our world wants to avoid difficulties. We're, we're in this Venetian world. Security, comfort, don't trouble me, I don't want to be bothered. Every tragedy has to do with the purging of some disorder. The Iliad was tragic in nature. So, Shakespeare's carrying on this tradition, but he's taking it into the modern world. Now here's the last thing before. Remember I said that um, tragedy doesn't mean something awful happening. I think I gave the example, I can't remember. I gave the example of the young woman riding in a carriage, an open carriage, and a sliver of glass fell. Did I give that example? Oh, God, sorry. It's getting worse and worse. Yeah, I think I, I remember giving it twice. Um, probably gave it twice to the other class. There's <laughs> a young girl riding in a carriage, open carriage, and a pane of glass above shatters, and a sliver of glass falls and kills her immediately. And the journalist writing the story says it was a tragic event. We hear that all the time in journalists, right? Some awful thing happens and we say tragedy. I hope it's clear by now. That is not what tragedy means. That was an accident. That was not a tragedy. It was unfortunate, and we use the word tragedy. But in the sense in which we're using the world, it couldn't be farther because tragedy implies a coherent action. There's an integrity, a unity to all the, all the things that happen. If three things coincide and, and produce a death, that itself does not constitute a tragedy. That's coincidence is accident. We're, we're always involved with a play in which a sequence of events leads to a peripatia, a turn, and a scene, a recognition, and a resolution. So the tragic action always moves in the direction of a greater clarity, a great suffering, that the suffering means something. It makes us aware of disorders and a hope because we know that there's this providential God. I mean, that's right at the center of Hamlet because it ends with him saying, I learned about God at the end. I mean, I'm going to get to that in a minute. Is there an intentionality in the unfolding of those events? Say that again, Tom. Is there an intentionality in the unfolding of those events that turn into tragedy? By, by that you mean what? I mean, there's kind of a, uh, there's a little certain deliberateness to it. There's an intention, that I, maybe a plan, or there's something that... Here, here's, here, I'm not, if I understand your question, that's a good question again. You guys, let me put it this way. I, I wouldn't describe it that way myself because there's a danger in doing that, a plan. Um, because Shakespeare's too great an artist. Shakespeare, like God, allows, protects the free will of humans. So certain things happen. So they don't take an intentional form because to, to put it that way implies a fate or destiny, like everything's controlled. Or wait, 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 because this is hard for me. Um, that he protects the free will of people so that certain things happen that were not planned or intended or part of a, a predetermined destiny, the way C. Calvin would say, that things are predetermined, that that's not what's going on. Characters are allowed to do. Hamlet kills Polonius by accident. He thinks it's Claudius. And it turns out to be Polonius. He kills him. Um, Shakespeare's doing that. But what's really clear is 
by the end, and every work that we've read, is that there seems to be a divine order working with man's free will, helping man to, to attain an end he can't on his own. So I use the word providential, which is the word Hamlet uses, that there's a providential order, there's a God watching over, but... But you cannot see that at the time. No. Yes, absolutely right. Good for you. Okay. But, but it's really crucial to make this distinction because Hamlet, I mean, Shakespeare is, a, for me, Catholic Christian. He's allowing for free will for things to happen, but it's really clear when you put all of it together. And you could say this about Homer. You could have said it about Virgil. You certainly can say it about Dante because we know that the divine order was set in motion, you know. But even more here, because Shakespeare is allowing characters to do what they do, you know, it's not like they're determined to do it because they're not. But what we see at the end in the way things are resolved, there's a providential order. Now hold off on the rest of that because I got a huge question for you guys at the end. Let me put it to you now. But, but here's the question that I'm going to put to you guys at the end. Because I had it about Othello, and I, I, I get a little bit concerned when people don't see that Othello's, a, I think he's an extraordinary person. I asked the question whether uh, we can find Christ in Othello. I think some people said, no, he's just a scumbag. He killed his wife, and you know. I don't look at him that way. I, I think Christ is very much present in him. And, and the fact that he took his life and committed suicide, which is shocking to a Catholic, you're not supposed to take your life. You commit a sin when you do that. I'm still going to argue Christ is there. But with Hamlet, Hamlet, here's the ma one of the major questions of Hamlet. Because it, 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 it's a question about reading. And that's been one of the large questions that I've been putting out here since we began. When Hamlet begins, he's given this revelation. The ghost says, my brother killed me, put poison in my ear, avenge my death. Now, old Hamlet belongs to this warrior code, Achilles, did. he belongs to this, you fought men, you did this. Oh. Claudius is a new Machiavellian figure. He's a man who uses cunning to control everything. He kills his brother, takes the throne. Hamlet's asked, avenge my death. Now, in the ancient code, Achilles, simple to do. Somebody killed Patroclus, kill him back. What does the Iliad end on? Achilles and Hector fighting. Yeah? And the war comes to an end. You just avenged, a, it was called a blood death, a blood cost, the, you know, the blood, eye for eye, blood for blood. The, if a relative, Orestes had to do this. Telemachus beat himself up over it because his dad was dead. Would he have the courage to deal with these suitors? If somebody's doing harm to your family, you get rid of them. That's that old code. Hamlet's gone to a Christian university. He gets this revelation. The ghost says, avenge my death. Now, what does he do? He doesn't just go kill Claudius. He keeps berating himself about that. The very next scene after the mousetrap scene, he sees Claudius at prayer. He's ready to kill him because the, the ghost has been confirmed by the mousetrap play, right? What does he do? I'm not going to kill him. That's a fine way to avenge my dad. That, he says, that's higher in salary. I'm sending him to heaven. What an honorable son I am. And it's at that moment he says, I want to find him at a time when he's doing something damnable. Now we're no longer in that ancient honor code. Now we're in a Christian world. So the question is, what are the motives for his killing Claudius? 
if he just killed him, he would have been in an old ven vengeance coat, um, pagan. But now he's entered a Christian world and he wants to damn him. Now, my question is, at the end of the play, when he kills Claudius, does he damn himself? Back to the Othello problem. Here's this noble man who, who the quest is finally ended, right? Claudius is dead. The, dis the evil's been answered. So is this... <laughs> is this intentionality? Yes. Was it all worked out? Is this just was it was it scripted before it happened? Um, is he is is Hamlet left in this old vengeance code, or is it worse because as a Christian he wanted to damn him, so by killing Claudius he's damned himself. Where are we at the end of this tragedy? Leave, no, I don't want to answer. Go, go Leave it there because I want to read these passages. I think he's. I don't want an answer. <laughs> hold it, hold it. I don't want to do anything. I want to save it for the end because we've got passages to look at. So here's one more thing about the, um, the tragic movement, the, the tragic action. Okay, We've seen this again and again. Remember, according to Aristotle, every tragedy is about a noble-souled individual. Every tragedy. It's important to see that because if we don't recognize the nobility, we won't feel the depth of the fall. Because he says every tragic hero has a flaw, what the ancients called a hamartia, a flaw. They just miss something, off target. To the extent that we take away somebody's nobility, we decrease the meaning of the fall. If he's just doing nothing, who cares? But if he's a very noble figure and he falls, then we feel awful for him because he's lost all these great gifts. Yeah? Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. Dante's an ordinary figure, so he changes it some. But remember, the, 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 the work he is called the Divine Comedy. And we don't see anything tragic. Everything in hell is not tragic, it's grotesque comedy. It's not a tragedy. So, in every tragedy, um, we see a noble souled individual with all these gifts take on the disorders of his people. But there's something about what he does that isolates him from his people. Now this is crucial, and this is where I want to take a minute to do something, to question something that I've been looking at most of my life as a teacher. Louise Cowan at, at Dallas called the, the, that period of isolation that the tragic hero enters into the tragic abyss. The tragic the, abyss. Wow. The tragic abyss. But here, here, this is, this, this is going to take a minute, sorry, but I've got, this is really important for me. Here's what's interesting. The tragic hero does something to isolate himself from his people. He enters into this period of isolation or darkness. Yeah? We can call it the tragic abyss. As if it's just darkness. In some sense, it seems that we, we associate the tragic abyss with nothingness. It's like a separation from God. He removes himself from everything that he knows. I'm going to assume, for the, our purposes, the catechetical, catechetical side of this for me, that everybody in this group knows that, that we've all had moments where something's happened that left us feeling absolutely isolated and alone and dark. Um, it could have been the loss of somebody. It could have been a sin of our own. That the committing of a sin will very often make us feel isolated disconnected, because sin does separate us, right? 
So I'm trusting that all of us know this. The peripatia, remember in the tragic action how important this is, at some point in the tragic action, a peripatia, a turn, takes place. And I've described that as those moments when suddenly the rug is pulled out from underneath us, and it's as if the world as we know it is gone. It can be the loss of somebody. Um, what we learn about ourselves from those losses, because of the darkness that we go into, can be a sin, whatever it is. The anagnorisis is anagnorisis, recognizing, seeing. It's a moment of illumination, seeing something about ourselves, the world. Every tragic hero that we've read, those of you who have been you know, with us from the beginning, we know that every work we've read um, follows that pattern. Um, the, word, the, the church uses the word metanoia, conversion, a turning. That Achilles stepped outside of his world at the very beginning. Remember, he, he and Agamemnon argue, and when they fight, he leaves the world, and I mean the Greek world, and the Greeks do worse. And he, he says, I'm going to stay out until the Trojans are at the ships. Odysseus is on the, on the adventures while his home is going to hell in ruin. Aeneas goes into the underworld. I mean, every tragic hero goes through a period where he has to face this darkness before he can go on. Now, I've always thought about that in terms of a darkness, but I, a question came to me the last couple of days that has really been interesting for me, and it's this. When the tragic hero steps outside of his world, he steps outside of a world full of disorders. He steps outside of that world, which means he no longer judges the world the way other people do. He doesn't see things that way. So on what basis does he make his judgments? Because I know this from personal experiences. I know it from all the reading I've done. And I think I know it from us as humans. How much of what we do in the judgments that we make, the decisions that we make on our world, are based on the way other people do things, even if we don't want to admit it? the authorities, the experts, the psychologists, the economists, or, you know. Um, every work that we've been reading shows a character stepping outside of that world. Now, when he steps outside of that world, on what basis does he make his judgments? What does he turn to? The church keeps saying to us, make our judgments according to eternal things, to God, not the world. How much of anything that we do is governed by the world, the fussiness, the control, the decisions, the way our mind goes. Um, in the tragic paradigm, the hero steps outside of that. He's isolated, alone. But he comes back. Achilles, I don't, I don't want such, such honor is the thing I need not. He's outside of that world. Book 18, I let everybody down. Patroclus dies. I let everybody down. He comes back into the war. He's luminous. Does he make his judgments on the same way other people do? Are his frames of reference the same frames of reference that other people use to make their judgments? No. And Hamlet, the same thing. How, how are people making their judgments in Hamlet? Or Othello's world, dealing with evil, somebody like Iago. So I've always looked at the tragic abyss as completely black, but it's interesting to me because it seems to me it implies some light underneath it. But it, Aristotle's description of the light we don't see God face to face. It's, Aristotle's description is, it's like looking at the sun. We can't look at the sun because it's too bright. 
So implied in this tragic abyss is this light that we can't see, we see it as darkness. If we saw it as it is, it would be blinding. A luminous darkness. Yes. Are you following everybody? So it's a dark night of the soul, it's St. John's, or the dark night of the tragic paradigm. But it's interesting that it implies a light. Now, some people give in to the darkness, they're gone. I mean, people commit suicide, you know. In the tragic paradigm, that doesn't happen. He's in this darkness, but something comes to him that makes possible a change. He will no longer make judgments according to the world, because what we see in every one of these plays is the world is full of disorders. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Divine Comedy, Merchant of Venice, Othello, Denmark. Yeah? Okay, so the question here is, if the world in Denmark sees things a certain way, because everybody's trapped in that world, nobody sees what's going on, we do, but do the people in the vault, do the, do the soldiers? They don't have a clue about what's going on. So, interesting, the tragic paradigm shows us the movement of a hero who enters a darkness and comes out of it not judging the way the world does. So the decisions that he makes won't be completely understood. The other people are doing things safely because that's the way everybody does them. And they're stuck in that world. And we've seen this in every work we've read. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Indian, the Divine Comedy, Merchant, Othello, here. Okay? So this notion of tragedy is not a small thing. Last time I gave you those disorders, didn't I? The, the, that the object of the mind for Thomas is being, the object for Freud, the object for the Protestant. I gave you all that, right? Wow. I've got to do this quickly. It's going to cut into my readings on Hamlet, but let me do it anyway. Didn't I make this claim for you guys that the modern mind is diseased? I didn't I say that? And I gave you the disease, the disorders. The object of the mind for Thomas. The object of the mind is being. Didn't I do this? I know I did. No. There's something wrong with my mind, or there's something wrong with your minds. <laughs> Back to when you were talking about um, the hero being in the darkness. Yeah. Uh, so during that darkness period, he would have to have some type of revelation, right? To Wait come out of it. Wait on it, because yeah, okay. we're gonna. Wait on it and see what Hamlet says. The object of the mind for Thomas is being. I am that am being, the being of things. That means, that means being would be in a tree, a bird, a fire going out, a wind hover, four-year-old girl pricking herself. We've been talking about the logos in present. The poems that I've been reading have been poems that in some way reveal something Christ-like or Christ himself. When Hopkins wrote The Wind Hover, 
he describes this bird in such a way that makes it clear that at that moment of hovering, when it, when it, um, what's the word, um, buckles, when it buck, all those powers buckled in that moment, that he sees that as a moment that, that corresponds with what happens in the crucifixion. But in that buckling, this great beauty is shown. In this moment of breaking, this great beauty is shown. How can he do that if there weren't a being or a logos present in nature? And the question that I've been asking from the beginning is how many of us see that being? How many of us see the being in nature? How many of us recognize Christ in a four-year-old girl pricking her finger? How many of us see Christ in each other? Um, how real is that for us? Are those just words or do we take that seriously? Because to take it seriously means, as I'm describing today, stepping outside of this world where everybody wants to be safe and flee the cross. There's a fleeing from the cross in that, when Christ calls it to us. So for Thomas, the, the object of the mind is being as it's differentiated through essences, the essences of things. It's differentiated through the essences, trees, trees, humans, animals, right? Um, whatever the essence of a thing is. Because what the mind grasps, the senses grasp particulars, yeah? Each other, particular things. What the mind grasps is the essences of those things. It's it, the being of them. So in the really great poets, they're taking us to being. And I, I'm trusting you're making the connection. I am that am. God is being itself. There was nothing before out of his being, he created things. We all participate in that being. So everything in nature has God's stamp. Do we see it? Do we really see God in our creation? And I'm saying the modern world is a disease. We don't. Thomas said the object of the mind is being. The object of the scientist is the necessity of things in quantifiable, measurable terms. That is, in abstractions. The scientist lives in abstractions having to do with quantity, things that are measurable by math. So he looks at what, what's what can't be other than it is. That's, that's why it gets to laws. It can't be other. It's repeatable. It's in nature. But what he sees is something quantifiable. It's an abstraction. It's removed from concrete reality because abstractions prescind from it. They come from it. So he's removed from... He's removed from concrete realities because the whole point of the science is to come to an abstraction that takes the form of a law, something that is constant. Einstein said he wanted to understand the mind of God. Say? Einstein said he wanted to understand the mind of God. Yeah, I know, I know. Because God is the first scientist. Well, that's not true. I hope you know that. Science has to do with discovering things, and God already knows everything. Remember what St. Paul said, too, when you hold up something like that? Because St. Paul said, we, we only come to know invisible things, and God is, by the things that are known. The natural way of knowing as humans is to move through the concrete order. I say understanding, understanding science also leads us to knowledge of God. I, I, theoretically, it should. And by the way, and I agree with that, Thomas would understand science the way you're using it, but most scientists today don't understand science. I mean, most, most scientists think of science as in terms of um, empirical 
discoverable things that can be verified you know, by empirical methods. So St. Thomas would use the word science more like the way you're using it. Most modern, most modern scientists wouldn't. What we've discovered through cosmology, if you just change some of the constants of nature, like gravity or electromagnetism, life could not exist. The world would be so completely different. The world wouldn't exist as it exists today. And the point you're making, I'm sorry, is that there's an order that can't be changed? Is that the Yeah, yeah that, that, right. that there's some intelligence behind that. Right. Which a lot of scientists, you know, say, you know, exists by itself. It has nothing to do with a god. <clears throat> yeah. But to me, that just shows that, uh, uh, you know, if you just tweak something, uh, one of those constants, the world of today would not exist. We wouldn't have atoms, we wouldn't have cells, we wouldn't have genomes. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, that's, that's a theoretical, it's a really abstract kind of notion that I can imagine evolutionary thinkers saying, but things change all the time, that it's the nature of things. To, but I, I don't want to, you know, I, scientists have all sorts of answers to these things. So for Thomas, the object of the mind is being, to the scientists, it's quantifiable abstractions. The object of the mind for the idealist philosophers, and if that's a strange term for you, the idealist philosophy, which is the philosophy of the modern world, begins with Descartes and Kant. And if you've read Descartes, you know that according to Descartes, what we know are not what we know through are the senses, because for him the, the senses and mind don't come together, the body and mind. According to Descartes, what we know are ideas in our heads. So that's the beginning of the philosophic tradition that, that puts us at odds with the world outside of us. What we know are ideas. What Thomas would say is what we know are things, that our knowledge is actually of things. So according to the idealist philosophers, what we know are ideas. Wouldn't that be Plato also? Does he? The difference between, I mean, that's, boy, wow, you guys, it's, except for this, it, this is really different, Tom, but it's such a good question. Plato had a metaphysics. It's why he's, he's called, along with Aristotle, a realist, because he believed in an unchanging eternal reality. So if we had ideas for Plato, it would be ideas of those. There is a reality. For the modern idealists, what we're left with are the notions in our heads that have nothing to do with, or little to do with, an unchanging God. The forms, the ideas for Plato are God. It's the ideas, uh, or, or what he would call the good. But that's why we would call Plato a realist and not an idealist. The modern mind tends to be idealist in the sense that it lives in ideas. It doesn't relate to the world anymore. The object for Freud, as a scientist, are man's um, Perversions, what he called these edible instincts, these Oedipal from Oedipus who married his mother. And, but Freud believed that these were basic to our nature and that man had no free will. These were the determinisms of, of our character. This, this is us as essence. So what he saw is this polymorphous, perverse essence to man. And unless man could 
and the, and the mechanisms that we develop to hide it, the repression, the sublimation, the, all of the other the compensations, the things that we do. According to the Protestant mind, what the Protestant mind looks at is man's um, depravity. According to Luther and Calvin, the effects of the fall were complete. That's the difference between us as Catholics. They believe that man's essence was ruined. The effects of the fall were complete. That left man depraved. So reason, man's free will were wiped out. They, they don't believe, Calvin didn't believe that we had free will. They believe in a depravity. So what they look out in the world and see is depravity. That's the essence of man. Without Christ, there is no good. A Catholic believes differently. We believe we're wounded, but that our essence was left intact. Does our virtue make us capable of entering heaven? No, but it doesn't keep us from performing virtuous acts. They're just not capable of getting us to heaven. So you can have somebody who's a, a, uh, an agnostic, an atheist, who can actually be a virtuous person, but will he completely live Christ or get to Christ or heaven? No. Okay, so if you look at all these, what you see is that the, and here, we've been talking about this. This is when Iago arrives at, um, at, um, what's that, Cyprus, yeah? Remember when they were together there, the, they'd ship, they just got off the ship, and he had this facetious remark to make to Amelia, his wife, and then he, Amelia and Desdemona said, well, how would you, Desdemona says, how would you praise me then, if that's what you do to your wife? Iago's words, O gentle lady, do not put me to it, for I am nothing if not critical. Is there any good that he ever sees in the world? He can do nothing but find fault everywhere. Everything he looks at, he makes worse than it is. Does that mean we're not supposed to be critical? I don't believe that. Because if we're not critical, we can't just distinguish between good and evil. I mean, we have to learn to see evil and deal with it. We're asked to confront it. Um, but there's nothing in, in Iago's mind that can do anything but see evil. I'm nothing if I'm not critical. And then remember when he begins to tempt Othello, and Othello, Othello begins to question him, and, and Iago plays coy for a moment. God, it's just amazing to watch him work. He, he, he's really manipulative. I mean, he twists everything. He says, Though I perchance am vicious in my guess, as I confess, it is my nature's plague to spy into abuses, and off my jealousy shapes faults that are not there. He makes things that are bad that are not. Is there anything in the world that he sees that's good? Does he ever love? Because the natural object of love is goodness. What inspires love is goodness. God loved his own good. I mean, there's nothing but loving God because he's all good. When we see good in another person, it should awaken love in us. Yeah? Um, there's nothing good for Iago. He's, he's like a demonic. He's like a Satan figure. All he can do is stare down. Um, I wanted to read some passages from Hamlet, but we're getting... Remember that speech at the very beginning when the king, after the king, after the um, um, State of the Union address? Hamlet comes out and he has that speech um, about being sullied. I'm going to, if I can run through this, I want to get to the last lines because we're.
Um, Act 1, scene 2, about line 120. Oh, that this too sullied flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into dew. Oh, that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Oh, God, God, how weary, stale, and flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Fine, fine, it is an unweeded garden that grows to seed, thinks rank and gross in nature, possess it merely. There's nothing in the world that isn't bad to this young man now. And let me stop. Remember, remember what Telemachus' response was to the problems at home? Optimistic, negative. Negative everywhere, right? And remember when he visited Nestor, and he was describing the situation, and Nestor said, Athena would have watched out for your father, and Telemachus said, oh, it wouldn't even happen, even if the gods willed it. Who's right next to him? Athena. How, much, how many of us, you know, particularly when we're younger, but I mean, sometimes I wonder about the saints. How many of us, when we're younger, when these painful moments happen, when we, 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 you know, his mother's just married, his father, from, every, from all accounts, he seemed like a really good man. And, and, and the mother loved him. The father doted on her. A, a month or two months after his death, she marries. What young man, and as a man who's going to grow into fatherhood, is going to be at ease with that? So we get this very dark view here. Turn to um, Act 2, Scene 2. This is when Hamlet is talking with his two friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Remember, they're, they're, um, the players are going to arrive and, um, and the, the arrival of his friends surprise him a little bit, but he's going to talk with the players in a few minutes. And remember, he's going to read that long speech from the Aeneid, which is a tearful speech because it has to do with that moment when Pyrrhus kills old um, Priam. And Hamlet takes that serious because he's in the same position. He's going to have to kill a king. So he's identified in some way with Pyrrhus, who was a brutal, brutal man. Anyway, act, 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 scene, act two, scene two, about line 290. Um, Hamlet's been questioning Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and asking why they're there because it's a surprise. And Guildenstern says, my lord, we were sent for. This is about line 290. Do you all have the page? Does anybody have the page? 50. Which is it? 50. 50. Hamlet, I will tell you why, so shall my anticipation prevent your discovery. Because he knows, this is how, why he knows Claudia sent for them. I mean, he, he, he's that astute. These are, and here, there's two friends caving in. Like Polonius, their allegiance is more to the state, to temporal powers, than to God. Because remember, totalitarian means you get total control in the world over the soul, when the soul belongs to God. So all these people in this Denmark world have caved into the state. They've accommodated themselves to the state to be safe, to not be in danger. Hamlet's in danger everywhere. He says, I will tell you why, so shall my anticipation prevent your discovery and your secrecy to the king and queen molt no feather. Nobody will learn. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises. Indeed, it goes so heavily with my disposition 
With this goodly frame, the earth seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave o'erhanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why, it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. What a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable in action, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Remember, from dust we came, from dust we return. But this extraordinary thing made in the image of God out of dust. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, nor woman, neither, though by your smiling you seem to say so, as if they're implying. I mean, this is the... He's carrying this extraordinary burden. He's got to kill his uncle. This is extraordinary. He's, he's carrying pain around because of the burden he has. And these men are making light because when he says, man, do, man delight not me, in their minds they're thinking, yeah, but women do because, you know, you want to have sex. And so even if you don't delight men, the facetiousness on their side, they're just missing what he's carrying. Go on over just quickly. Um, I don't want to read the whole speech, but Act 3, Scene 1, this is the scene in which Claudius and Polonius put Ophelia on Hamlet. And they're hiding to watch his response. And it's a painful moment to her. Um, she's, she's returning these little things that Hamlet has given to her because she feels that he doesn't love her anymore. The, the speech, or the, the, the scene begins um, with Hamlet speaking that to be or not to be speech, about line 60. I don't read, I don't want to read it all, but to be or not to be, that's the question. Is there any reason for not taking our lives when we're facing bad things if it isn't that we don't know what's going to happen in the next life? It's our fear of what happened that, that it might damn us that prevents us from doing it because the miseries of this world sometimes become so overwhelming that we want to get rid of them. And that's the response. So it's this meditation on suicide. Um, the undiscovered country from whose born no travel returns puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we not, know not of. The conscience does make cowards of us all and thus the native hue of resolution is sickled over with a pale cast of thought. This is what led some of the 19th century critics to think he's procrastinating. He's just in a world of thought. You know, it's partly true. I mean, he's thinking about the implications of everything. But behind it is two things, and, they, and, and they've given him this dark view. He's just learned that his uncle killed his father, and he came home because his mother married his uncle. So this young man is wounded everywhere. I mean, he looks out in the world, and what he sees is sin and ugliness. Is it not there? It is there. Clearly is there. So all of these scenes show a man who is learned, capable, thoughtful. He has a religious imagination. He thinks about theological matters. He's a swordsman. We know that because he's going to fight the pirates when they capture him. He's going to fight theirs at the end. He's what Shakespeare would have known at that time as a Renaissance man. But all of these qualities, he's an extraordinary individual. Remember the, the paradigm, a noble-souled individual. He has these amazing qualities. But we also know that underneath, he wants to damn Claudius. 
Now turn to the end, let's go to the end, and then I'm going to close with some questions here. After the mousetrap scene, Claudius sends Hamlet away. Claudius is unnerved. He, he has to have some sense that for this young kid to do this, he may know. I mean, he, he just doesn't know. But he knows that the people love him, and he knows that he's a threat because the people can rise up. He's got to get rid he's got to control. He's got to get rid of him. So he sent um, a, across the channel with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, but with a commission for his death. Um, and when he comes back, he comes back to the graveyard scene. I don't want to go through it, but there's that one line in the graveyard scene when he, when he comes into the graveyard scene with the two gravediggers who are joking about death, because they live with it all the time. It's, this scene is so important. I wish we had more time. We don't. This scene is so important because it's Hamlet's meditation on death. It's his coming to terms with death, to not be afraid of it. He has that one question um, because the clown talks about when he began his profession, and Hamlet asks when, and the, and the clown, the gravedigger says, why, any fool, he's talking to Hamlet, he's the prince heir, any fool would know that. It was the day Hamlet was born. What line is that? Hmm. About, this is Act 5, Scene 1, about line 130. Of all the days of the year, I came into that day that our last king, Hamlet, overcame Fort North. How long ago was that? Cannot you tell that? Every fool can tell that. It was the very day that young Hamlet was born. He that is mad and sent into England. Well, they don't know that this is Hamlet return, but why this line? It's really clear that what Shakespeare's doing for us is showing that death has been with Hamlet since his birth. Why else would he have this line? I started my profession on the very day Hamlet was born. Death has been overhanging Hamlet. And then he goes on to these meditations on Alexander, who was the great conqueror of the world, who died and went to dust, and the dust, the, the, the dust that was used from Alexander's body was used to plug, was it a dung hole or a beer hole? Um, about line 195, Alexander died, Alexander was buried, Alexander returned to the dust. The dust is earth, of earth we make loam, and why of that loam where Tui was converted might they not stop a beer barrel? So this great master of the world gets used as a, as a beer stop. <laughs> What's Hamlet learning? I mean, it's what we learn every Easter. From dust we came to dust we shall return. However important we are, if we don't ever learn that we're nothing, that God made us, we're in trouble. We can have all the control. What, and what does the play show us, about, show us about controlling the world? Claudius is trying to control everything. Polonius died. He's trying to control his daughter. There are things that I think we're meant to control, but but this despotic control, this arbitrary control, everything in the play is critiquing it. Alexander conquered the world, and he's used as the stop for a, for a beer barrel. Okay, here five last lines, and then I've got some questions to ask him which time. Act 5, scene 2, it begins. Hamlet, this is before he goes into the fencing match with Laertes. He and Laer or, or Horatio there, you, we know from Act 3 that Horatio knows about the ghost and nobody else. And he's confiding in Hamlet what happened on the Channel Crossing. 
and you know that the, the that he was ransomed, that the pirates came to get money and they sell him, so he's returned. And he's a shot to Claudius because Claudius <laughs> Claudius assumed he'd be dead, right? So for for him, this is like a ghost. This is really funny for Claudius to see this young man again has got to be terrifying for him. Hamlet says, opening of Act Five, Scene Two. Um, so much for this. Now shall you see the other? Do you remember all the circumstances? Remember it, my lord. This is, by the way, this is Horatio saying, are you kidding me? How could I forget it? This is how dear, Horatio loves this young man. He loves him dearly. You remember all that? Remember it, my lord? What he's saying is, Do you, how could I forget it? Yeah. Hamlet, sir, in my heart there was a kind of fighting that would not let me sleep. Methought I lay worse than the mutinies and the bilboos, rashly and praise be rashness for it. Let us know our indiscretion sometimes serves us well when our deep plots do pall, and that should learn us there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them how we will. He had this misgiving in his heart. He woke up, acted on it, he went down below, opened the commission, and he saw that he was being sent to his death. He took the commission, rewrote it, putting his two friends' names in place of his own, and then was going to seal it up, you know, the sinks it. But once he broke the seal, somebody would know it was broken. But here he's saying, um, there was the stirring. I lay worse than the mutinies in the book, rashly, and praise be rashness, because he did this rash thing. Now stop and think about it. How many of us always want to control everything? That don't allow for a rashness. And Hamlet is saying, our indiscretion sometimes serves as well when our deep plots do pall. He did something rash. If his friend, had, if he'd been married, his wife were there, what would she have said? Yeah. Our indiscretions sometimes serve as well when our deep plots do pall. Trying to plot everything out. We have these deep plots. And that should learn us there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them how we will. No matter how rough-hew them, no matter how imperfect are, we make all these plans. This time, this goes to your question, but there's a God there bringing out of them something. There's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them how we will. So that's why I'm asking you to just think about that word intentionality, that there is a logos to things, but humans have a free will. We've been watching people kill and abuse and contrive and you know, manipulate but Hamlet now is beginning to realize, for the first time, something else is going on. So he says there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we He describes what happens, changes the thing, and then Horatio says, um, and Hamlet says, then I sealed it up again. This is about line 45. But how did you do that, right? Because it was sealed with the wax. Why, even in that was heaven ordinate I had my father's signet in my purse, which was the model of that dainty seal, folded the writ up in the form of the other, subscribed it, gave it the impression, placed it safely, the changeling never known. Now the next day was our sea fight, and what was sequent to this year, what happened afterwards, you know, the pirates got me. And by the way, he fought the pirates. He jumped ship. This is not a squeamish man. He took his sword, jumped ship, and fought the pirates. So everything we know about Hamlet, he's ready to fight. He wasn't, he wasn't delaying anywhere. The serious thing was wanting to get Claudius at a point where he could then. 
Now he's ready to go into the fencing match and the, the Lord comes out and says, Laertes and the king are ready. We already know from the previous scene that Claudius and Laertes are planning to kill him, that they're going to poison the sword. And Claudius says, I'm going to put poison in the wine so that when Hamlet wants a break, if the sword tip doesn't get him, the drink will. Hamlet says, once again, when the Lord comes out, they're ready. This is line 204. Um, Laertes says he's going to lose, and Hamlet says, no, I've been practicing the sword fighting. We know that this guy's capable. He says he'll win. Um, but, um, but then he says, I shall win at odds, but thou wouldst not think how all hears about my heart, but it's no matter. He's, once again, he's got this misgiving. You all have the line, about 200? Who's got it? Can we get the peg? Nay, good, my lord, it's but fruit. This is Act 5, Scene 2, about line 200. Who's got the page? Uh, page 137, I think. About the middle. It is but foolery? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You all have it then? Oh, yeah. Okay. So Hamlet says, um, I shall win at the odds, but thou wouldst not think how ill all's here about my heart, but it is no matter. He's got a misgiving again. By the way, in the early part of the play, when he has the revelation of the ghost and the ghost speak to him, Hamlet's words were, Oh, my prophetic soul as if he had some sense that something was wrong. I just think it was interesting that he used that phrase because we've been talking about poetry as having this prophetic quality that, that there, here's a character who had a sense that something was not good. He has a misgiving again. Horatio, um, nay good my lord, it is but foolery, but it's such a kind of gains giving as would perhaps trouble a woman if your mind dislike anything, obey it. I will forestall their repair hither and say you're not fit. I'll tell them we'll do it another time. He's giving Hamlet an out. Is this a guy who's going to take an out? Not a whit. And here's the, these to me are among the most powerful lines we will ever read in anything Shakespeare's written. Not a whit, we defy augury. There is special providence, there it is, Tom. There's special providence in the fall of a sparrow if it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Since no man of aught he leaves knows, he doesn't know the time when he's going to leave this world, what is it to leave the times? Let be. What's he saying? Oh, he will be. Right. But, he, but can you flesh that out some? Not a whit. We defy augury. It's like an augury has been given. We defy augury. There's been an omen. Hamlet feels so strongly about what's about to happen. There's special providence in the fall of the sparrow. That's right, by the way, that's from Matthew, from Christ, saying... You may not have a plan, but God has a plan. <clears throat> yeah. If it's, if it's now, it won't be to come. If it's not now, it will be. Right? So it's going to happen, whichever. We don't know. And here's, the, I think, the most important line. Whatever happens doesn't matter. What happens is, what matters is to be ready. Okay, now, just for a second. Can you relate this to anybody in your wide readings, particularly as Catholics? Let be. Jesus. Where? At the, tri 
Sorry, to, the trial of Pilate. At the trial. In the garden. In the garden. In the garden and on the cross. And on the cross. Mm -hmm. Isn't it? At the trial, he's absolutely, whatever's going to be, he, he knows he's going to his death. He knows he's going to his death. In the garden, he says, forgive them, or take this, take this from me. If it's not thy will, let thy will be done. Thy will, not mine. On the cross. So, now here's my, here's my question. So, and you all know what happens. They go into the sort of funny match. Um, um, Laertes and, and Hamlet exchange swords in a, in a tussle. The king drinks the wine as a, as a, for refreshment. The queen. No, the queen. Sorry, sorry, did I say the king? Sorry, thanks. Man. The queen, Gertrude, drinks the wine and immediately feels her death coming. She says, I'm poisoned. She knows it's the king. Um, and she says, I'm poisoned. Hamlet's first response, this is how much of a good king he would have been, close the doors. Treason's been done. Does he know it's the king? No. But he knows something's wrong. His immediate response, close the doors. I mean, that's not accidental. Shakespeare's showing us something about this man. This is Act 5, Scene 2, about line 300. Um, the drink, the drink, I am poisoned. She dies. Oh, villainy, ho, let the door be locked. Treachery, seek it out. Laertes falls, and he confesses now, to his credit, he's going to his death that he was implicated in this, that he plotted his death, says it was the king, the king. Um, Hamlet takes his sword and hurts the king, and everybody hears this world that they just left. Everybody says, treason, treason. He's killing a king. King, oh yet defend me, I am but hurt. Um, um, here, Hamlet says, thou incestuous, murderous, damned Dane, Drink off this potion. Is thy union here? Follow my mother. He dies. Laertes, he is justly served. It is a poison tempered by himself. Exchange forgiveness. I, this to me is a wonderful line. Exchange forgiveness with me, noble Hamlet. Whatever we held against Laertes, he's asking for forgiveness here. What, what else can we do dying, you know, or in the face of our sins? Exchange forgiveness here. Mine and my father's death come not upon thee, nor thine upon He doesn't want it. He wants forgiveness. So the two exchange forgiveness here. Hamlet, heaven make thee free of it. I follow thee. I am dead. Horatio, wretched queen, adieu. You that look pale and tremble at this chance that are but mutes or audience to this act. They don't understand what's going on, everybody around. Had I but time, as if this fell sequence death is strict, but this, this fell sergeant death is strict in his arrest. Oh, I could tell you, but let it be. Horatio, I am dead. Thou livest. Report me in my kind cause to the unsatisfied. People won't understand. Horatio's got to tell the story. Why? Because of Hamlet's Cleos, his honor. Tell this story that his honor matters that much. Report me and my cause aright to the unsatisfied. Horatio, no way I'm going to do that. Never believe it. I am more an antique Roman than a Dane. Here's yet some liquor. What's he about to do? Why is he a Roman? He's going to commit suicide. I'm not going to tell this story. It's too, it's too overwhelming to me. I want to die too. You're going? I mean, his great love is Hamlet. Never believe it. I am more an antique Roman than a Dane. Here's yet some liquor left. Wonderful lines for Hamlet to follow. 
As thou art a man, give me the cup, let go, by heaven I'll have it. O God, Horatio, what a wounded name, things standing thus unknown, shall live behind me. If thou didst ever hold me in thy heart, absent thee from felicity a while. Please don't go to heaven now. Absent thee from felicity. Wait a minute. Tell the story. It has to be told. And in this harsh world, draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. Fort Brass comes on, and he's going to take control of the realm. It's interesting because he's this political figure that Hamlet's sort of disdained. But we know that one of the differences between Hamlet and Fortinbras is Hamlet's a very practical sort of warlike leader. Um, um, Horatio is bending over Hamlet. This is about line 350. Now cracks a noble heart. Hamlet has just died. So he's looking at the dead body of his dear friend. Now cracks a noble heart, good night, sweet prince, and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. It's a prayer. Angels sing thee to thy rest. Fortinbras comes on and Horatio says, What is it would you see? If anything of woe or wonder, cease your speech. Because all you're going to find here is woe, deaths, and wonder. How did all this come to be? This, that in one sense, that phrase describes the very nature of tragedy woe and wonder. Every tragedy should take us, I'm saying this really seriously, every tragedy should take us to the threshold of the next life. We're on the verge, everybody's been killed. We're on the verge of wonder. What next? What, what does all this mean? So tragedy doesn't mean bad things. Dismiss it. Bad, bad men. What we saw in Othello, what we're seeing here, is that something extraordinary has happened that should leave us in woe or woe and wonder. Now, here's my question to you guys. Serious question. Where's Christ in this tragedy? It, it ends with everybody dead. Everybody dead. When he comes out of the mousetrap scene, he comes across Claudius at prayer. Um, and he says, this is higher in salary. This is a fine way to avenge my father's death. I'll wait till he's doing something damning. And I suggested to everybody that I think that's a grave danger for Hamlet, that to want to damn a man. Is, this, I, I hope it's clear. The question facing him was vengeance, which is an old code, right? And God has said, vengeance is mine. So he can take vengeance and stay in that code. He can also um, do something to attain justice. Because everything in our readings constantly say, our, God wants us to be just, to be just, to be just. Justice is not a small thing. Th those of you who did the Divine Comedy know that purgatory is bringing justice and mercy together. We have to take our sins seriously. We have to do something to atone for them, to get rid of them. With mercy, right? The bringing of mercy and justice together was the great call to us as Christians. That was the one of the truths of the Divine Comedy. Is what he does and does does he do it in a spirit of vengeance or justice? How are we to understand this moment? Because at this moment the quest comes to an end. He kills Claudius. He finally does it. Um, now remember, two things have happened before this. 
One was the what happened with the pirates when he was crossing, um, and what happened with the commission, he changed it. And the other is the meditation on death in the graveyard scene. So the play ends with us knowing that the that Hamlet has done this meditation that he's looking on death and in the way that we're asked to from dust to dust, Alexander's going to be used to plug a, a beer cake. I want to say a dung hole. I think he uses that dung, but I'm but he uses that his body is used to plug a beer cake and so he has this different attitude towards death, and then he's come to this point of seeing there's a providence in what's going to be. If it's going to be, um, it will. If it's not now, it is. If it's now, then it won't come. It's now. You know, what, what's important is the readiness is all. How do we look at this scene at the end when Hamlet kills Claudius? Is this the same man who wanted to damn Claudius? Is this an act of vengeance or an act of justice? How are we to understand this? Let me put it more provocatively. How do we read, since I've been talking about reading and the, the fact that we don't read very well, how do we read this ending? How do we understand? Is Christ present here or not? There's some form of transformation, isn't there? Is it forgiveness? Mutual forgiveness between Laertes and Hamlet. Yeah, which is touching. But with respect to Hamlet and Claudius, the completion of his quest, I'd, were you saying something, Tom? Were you? No, I was just thinking. Go ahead. Two, what about transformation? I was just thinking there's, there's always some awakening or transformation happens. And, and I'm not sure where it is, but it's there somewhere. <laughs> so, I, <coughs> Claudius is receiving justice. He is, right, I agree. Because, right, he should have been, well, actually, it's interesting. One of the parishioners in the Monday night group got really, a, I don't want to give things away here because I'm, I'm going to wait. Let me wait to hear. Is there no thoughts here? No thoughts? Debbie, where are you in this? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> It's justice. Huh? I think it's justice in the end. Um, I think it's not vengeance, out, but justice. I think it started out maybe in vengeance, but I think in the end, I think with his nobility and whatever, he has to be kind of true to his honor or whatever, and, and somehow it all plays into justice, I think, in the end. Okay. What are his motives at the end when he kills him? Are they the same as they would have been? Remember, he killed. He killed. He 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 ran the he ran the sword through the heiress, thinking it was Claudius, and I think assuming that he um, that because he was hiding, committing a sin, that it would have been a just end. I mean, he really wanted to kill him then, and then was surprised to see that it was Polonius, not Claudius. But he, his motive after the prayer scene, is he wants to damn him. That's the motive. My question is, what are his motives at the end? Well, I think that uh, besides killing Hamlet's father, he's also responsible for killing his mother, Laertes, and Hamlet himself. Claudius. Claudius. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Well, he's a serial murderer. <laughs> 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 Except he doesn't, he, yeah, right, he doesn't draw it out over time. He does it all in... Right. When he put Hamlet. Right. So and then so by that 
I think Claudius Alma is responsible for the two friends' death. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah, 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 he, yeah, yes, to all What struck me was that the way he kills Claudius here is with Claudius' own plot. Yes. He uses the sword. Oh, now. yeah. So there's, and he actually makes a trick so too. So. More, yeah, so, I mean, but all sure. of the things that Claudius has wrought come back on him. And so that seems more like justice than the vengeance. Well, wait, now here's, because here's, the, we're, we're skirting the issue here. Nobody's questioning Claudius's guilt, and you've all been really clear. I mean, there's nobody who dies in here that he doesn't, he's not, nobody, nobody dies whose death he's not implicated in. Yeah. And you, you, you picked it out, I mean, this is really good. The question that I'm asking is, is what Hamlet does vengeance or just? And there's no way to answer that without looking at his motives, his heart. But and by the way, this goes to one of the parishioners in the Monday night group said when I when I said that what he does is just, and I, I was making now I'm giving it away, but well I haven't answered it yet, but I was saying that there's something Christ-like in Hamlet. I I believe that. And he says, Christ goes around killing people? Christ doesn't kill them. So there's a question here, a serious question. Is he is Christ in him or not? What we can't yes, Claudius is implicated in all those deaths, but the question that I'm asking is, how do we look at Hamlet? Is this justice or vengeance? I think that vengeance is Can, can we answer it without looking at motives? Well, I was gonna say I think he no longer has the vengeance. Uh, because he has well, yes, and I think he has done the soul searching in a sense when um, and kind of resigned himself over. If it's my time, it's if it's your time, it's your time. Right. You know. Right. So I, I don't sense the vengeance there, but that's the transformation. The t t wait, wait. That say. That's the transformation from vengeance to avenge his father's death. Mm -hmm. And then, as the play evolves to just justice. At the end, Debbie, I, did you have something? Well, and I, this this may be a big, big, big stretch, but I don't think um, it, you may call it justice. But it's it seems to me what he is trying. He knows that Claudius is evil, and he knows that if this doesn't come to an end, his evil will continue to be perpetrated. And so, um, for the sort of the good of, it, 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 he almost, it's a, he's almost outside of himself, that he is um, hmm. getting rid of something. Why would you say that, if I can stop you? Why, what do you mean, almost, like, what do you mean by well, that? Well, because That's it's not about him anymore. It's not, and it's not even about his vengeance, it's not even about his, um, taking care of uh, his father's death and and doing what his father has asked him, it's really for the better benefit of the, the realm, the city. Is this all thought out? I don't think it. I don't think so. So explain that then, because because hold on, because remember just before he goes into the sword fighting scene, he says, "If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. If it hasn't, it will." Right. Um, there's a providence that looks out for the fall of a sparrow, let be the, you know. And he had that, that talk with Horatio saying, um, um, there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we will. And then it said, even there, heaven was, or 
So he's be, this is a man who didn't trust anything in the beginning, anything right. in the beginning. He couldn't trust nobody. Here at the end, is he, is he the same? No. no. Uh, I'd say he's really, he's trusting God. So when he right. says, let be, the readiness is all, it seems he's very close to Christ in the garden that whatever happens will happen. But his attitude is the readiness is all, whatever that means. Now my question is, he goes, you just described it in terms of his being aware. And is this all thought out in the moment that this happens? What, how do we understand this moment? You know, when, when somebody surrenders that completely, you know, there's, you know, there's a Christ-like quality to it, but it's like when somebody lets go and he's not aware of all these things. And I, I was thinking, like, what you were saying, like, is he a, being a delegate of the society at that time? Is he serving a higher purpose in the sense of he's reading because this this could go on uh, indefinitely, right. and it's like somebody has this just he's serving justice for a larger group, not just his own uh, vengeance. It's like a self-defense. Like what? Self-defense. Yeah, that's certain. Can you go back to that phrase again, Debbie? The, it's almost like he's outside of himself, meaning. That he's not concerned about Personal him. It's, it's not. It's yeah. not about him. It's not even about his dad. It's about something larger than than the players who. That's are why there. I asked. The, that's why I asked the question whether this was thought out. But hold on, what? Because you, if you've been wanting to. Well, yeah, but I don't. You know, it's long past the time Sorry. where we can really talk about this. But I don't understand, Bob, why. All right, Christ is in all of us. And so there, in that sense, all of these characters have certain aspects, the most evil mm -hmm. ones. Leave that aside, right. I don't want to that. But why can't this be God, God's providence making good out of the decisions man makes? And so there's certainly a Christ-like aspect in Hamlet, but as Suzanne said, flawed, and as we all are. And so why, why does this have to be that's the Christ figure? That's the person that is used to bring the hope, the, the, the future. I, I'm not sure that I've... Self-sacrifice. I don't think he killed him to... I, I mean, I don't think he thought... I'm going to yeah. kill this man because it's better for society. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get that that there was an intention. It happened. And so to me, this is, this is the way, not that it was ordained to be, but that, that can bring good or hope or yeah. whatever that yeah. moving on yeah. part is yeah. out of the tragedy. The tragedy yeah. is. Yeah. Let me... But, but remember, there's no tragedy without a tragic hero. Well, but, well, and I don't think he. I do think he was outside of himself. I agree with that. He was no longer about yeah. avenging his father. Yeah. Or yeah. yeah. It's it's. I mean, all the comments to me are really two things. I wanted to see if I could pull your comment and your comment together, and yours. I, I, the way that I look at this is that it's not thought out. It's not as if he's his mind has a hold of him the way it has through the play, because once he has that. Channel crossing revelation. Um, I think he's a changed man. He, he, this is the guy who could trust nobody from the very beginning of the play. But when the channel crossing op experience happens, and he says, "There's a divinity that shapes our ends," you know, 
and even there heaven was ordered, he's aware that there is something at work that he can trust. So at the end when he has that readiness is all speech, it seems to me, he's, I'd say he's very much like Christ in the garden. That, but he's a human and Shakespeare is very protective of human free will, as I think God would be because it's, it's our greatest gift. And you know from what I've said before following Thomas, our wills and our minds can't be separated. They, they are inseparable. We have a free will, and it only makes sense because of our reason and the ability that we have to distinguish between things, what choice would be good or not, or what we do with them. So how we make our, our minds good, when there's our mind, I'm going to argue our minds are so dis diseased in our world, and how do we make our wills good? Now wait, wait, Don, if I, I want to finish this point because it's getting way late, I'm way later than I... It's the mo one of the most important things it seems to me to take away from this is that Hamlet has, has been given a quest for, to avenge a death. But he's a Christian, he's, not, he's a transitional figure. He has a foot in his father's world because it's his father and he looks back to a pagan, he's a warrior, he carries that with him, we know that he's a warrior. But he's a Christian, he's gone to a Christian university, I, where there's no evidence that his father was. This is symbolic, Shakespeare's using the play to show. This is a, tr a modern threshold moment. Hamlet is a threshold play. It looks to the, res it looks to the Reformation, the, the importance of a private revelation, and, and the overwhelming effects that has on a person, what it does to him. And it's modern in the way that the, the, the Claudius is a Machiavellian figure, uses reason, the cunning. Um, Hamlet's a transitional figure. He's a, a man given to his intellect. He's, very, he's so intelligent, so smart, and he's <coughs> got to figure things out. Um, but after the, the um, mousetrap play, however he conceived of that vengeance quest, it changes. Because now he doesn't just want to kill the king, which would have simplified it all. He wants to damn him. So motives change. So it seems to me Shakespeare's really clear. Hamlet doesn't see that. Nobody in the play sees it. We do as readers. So um, Hamlet carries that in his heart for all that we know from everything that he says, everything he does, until the crossing. In that crossing experience, he changes. For the first time in the play, we're led to believe that he sees as a providence guiding all of the misplots that we make, that this God will bring is capable of bringing good out of evil. It seems to me the way we're, we're, we're supposed to read the end is that um, I'm going I'm to claim, I mean you can disagree, but um, that it's not thought out and it's not. I mean the, the point, it's not that he's doing the better good or, but there is some way it seems to me he does step outside of itself and that's a hard thing and it reminds me of Christ when he says let be, you know what will be let be, that he puts himself away, and in that sense, if you want to use that phrase, because I really like to put he's outside of himself. What he does is instinctive. It's closer to self-defense. We don't see the man plotting. He didn't go in there intending to kill him. But all of the things conspire. The, the king poisoned, Laertes says it was the king, the queen says it was the king. The, this calamity that's taking place has the king at its center. He's in a, people are killing, the, the king would kill him because he, he's wounded. I mean, he's actually wounded by Laertes' sword. So um, what he does is instinctive. It's not premeditated. It's not 
acting out of the premeditated, I'm going to call it a premeditating soul, having to control it, you know, and, and, and attain this really damnable end for him, that if he kills Claudius, so what happens at the end achieves justice, it brings the quest to an end, and I'm going to say it does it in the spirit of justice in a way that's protective of Hamlet's soul because he doesn't do it for all these other reasons. Wait, and I, but I want to say this. To me, it's, it's not a matter of, I'm not quite sure how you put this, but it's not preordained. It's not, it's, um, it's not by design. Intuitive. At the end, yeah. But the, the, the answer to the, the question you were asking, it's that Shakespeare's, I mean, think about the problem he had as an artist to try to find Christ, whether Christ is here. Could a pagan have done this? I don't believe so. No pagan could have done this. I don't, I don't think anybody could have done it who wasn't Catholic, myself. But the question is, do Catholics even read this way? Because I'd say most don't. It's like we take our faith for granted and we, I mean, Father's constant complaint is, his, his litany is saying rosary prayers and, you know, and, but get out of the pews and get out of the, Shakespeare, I believe, is, couldn't be more Catholic. He's got to do this in a way that's faithful to the Father, to Hamlet as a Christian, and the circumstances. And what he does is amazing. Um, Hamlet doesn't survive this. The, in fact, one of the arguments is he's wounded. He knows he's going to die. He can't wait. So is he, is he, is he not Christ-like because he's taking the life of another person when Christ would never do that? I would say no. I'd say he's, if, if we're looking at motives, because we can't decide it, we, to answer the question, we have to say, what are his motives? All of the indications are is that his motives have changed, that he's not the same man, that the transformation has taken place. What happens at the end is instinctive, but Shakespeare manages it in a way that protects his free will, his having to do justice, and not the kind of justice that he would have done before the Channel Crossing. So what, what he's doing is bringing him out of that old honor code into something new. And the, the question that it poses for us is, how do we read it? He's saying to Horatio, nobody's going to understand. They're all mute audience. Tell this story. And Shakespeare, because I think I just think he's extraordinary, he's, he's, he's doing it in a way to help us become better readers and to get, I'm going to argue, and to get closer to Christ by seeing these things. Let me stop there. Can we stop? That's way late. Far, I keep, I'm bad. <laughs> I keep saying I'm going to make it on time and God, look what I do to you guys. Sorry, sorry to do this. Can we stop? Any questions? Next play is um, Winter's Tale. You know that and you know from what I've said, the first half of Winter's Tale is the Othello story all over again, except what happens in the second half is nothing like it in literature. Are you all going to come to the potluck? Yes. I hope. Bring friends. What day is it? You said the 8th? The 8th on Sunday. Oh, that's a Sunday. Yeah.